So I was in my room and I was doing meditation and I was, felt like I was having this out-of-body experience. And, you know, and I was, I was in there and I just felt like I was moving up through the ceiling and I could see all of Birmingham. And then, you know, and I rose up a little bit more and I rose up in the clouds and, you know, and I could just look down and see everything. And I got to this place and there was a platform there. And there was this lady standing there when I got there and she says, uh, you know, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this chalk. And I want you to write down all your character defects. And I started walking and I started writing and, and I walked and I wrote and I walked and I wrote and I walked and I wrote and about an hour into it I looked up and I could see from a distance of shadow, just a little shadow from the distance. And I walked and I wrote a little bit more and I wrote a little bit more and and finally I looked up and it was like I could see a human form and it was coming toward me and, and I wrote some more and I wrote some more and and, and, and finally it was, it was Ricky. <laughs> it was Ricky, the convention chair. And I said, Ricky, what are you doing here, man? How are you doing? What are you doing here? And he looked at me, he said, whiny, Carl. I just came back to get some more chalk. <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is Carl, and I'm a real cocaine addict. First and foremost, I'm going to thank him who has many names for allowing me to be here at Sober, and for that I'm eternally grateful. You know, I'm going to thank you guys for putting on one hell of a convention. You know, I'm going to thank the committee for inviting me. Thank everybody that has participated, the speakers, the workshops. You know, thank my hosts, Russell and Maria. You know, I came here and I was feeling kind of bad when I got here, and I was at Russell's house coughing like I had the bluebonic plague or something, and... You know, and Russell, with his selfish ass, he bought me cough syrup and everything else. He told me, motherfucker, I don't care if you die, but you're going to speak here tonight. <laughs> so I'm going to die after the meeting, all right? You know, um, man, this is awesome. This is awesome. And I'll share with you why it's awesome. You know, um, on behalf of my home group, which is the Pomona Group in San Gabriel, Pomona Valley, we bid you welcome. If you're ever in California, stop by and see us. We meet on Wednesday night, Tuesday night, Thursday, Friday, and on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, we have a big book study, and you know enough, and we go real nice and slow. And on Wednesday night, we have what's called a crosstalk meeting. And, you know, that's exactly what it is. It's a crosstalk meeting, not, you know, the regular rude meeting where, you know, you're talking and somebody else is talking. That's called a rude meeting. No, we have a crosstalk meeting. And, you know, if you're the first time you come, we prefer for you to lie. That way we can get to know you. You know, um, my story is real simple. It's like everyone's in here almost. You know, I, I, I came from a relatively good family. I had a great background growing up. You know, I, I was born in a small town in Tennessee. You know, uh, if you don't know what Tennessee is, it's probably like Luton. <laughs> Nobody ever goes there. All the people just been stranded. <laughs> you know, and uh, what happened is I came from one of those typical homes where in the South where, you know, what goes on in the house stays in the house. 
You know, I don't know if you came from that type of house, but guess where I came from? What goes on in the home stays in the home. You know, my father, he was a, he had a third grade education. He was an entrepreneur. You know, one of the smartest men I ever met in my entire life. He provided a home for seven children. You know, I'm talking about in the early, just early. Watch it, Ricky. <laughs> just early, okay? And, you know, and he provided a home for us. And, you know, each one of us had our own rooms. You know, we shopped at, you know, the exclusive stores at that time. You know, it was Sears and Robux. Look at that. Young people going, what? <laughs> and so, you know, and what was going on in the house is that my father, he was beating the hell out of my mother. You know, my father, he was, he, he may have been considered one of us, but he wasn't one of us. You know, they have a line in our book, and they talk about him, and, you know, they call him a certain type of hard drinker. You know, what happened is in 1962, my mother left, and she took my sisters, and me and my brother stayed with my father for another two years. And in that two years, one of the most miraculous things that I've ever seen in my life happened. My father stopped drinking, and he never took another drink to the day he died on December 7th, 1996. He never took another drink. Our book, it describes people like him, where he was able to just put it down and walk away and, you know, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and I don't know if it was because my mother left or what have you, but he had a sufficient reason to stop. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had many sufficient reasons and I've had many women leave me, but I haven't found a reason to stop yet. And what happened is that, you know, we are... Uh, we stayed there with my father a couple of more years, and then me and my brothers, we left, and we went to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And when we went to Michigan, it was culture shock. You know, we went from living in this big house and having all this land and money and everything else to we went to move and moved into an, uh, what I like to call a tenement. It was, you know, it was a one-bedroom, and the kids slept in the room. My mother slept on the couch, and, you know, and it was a community bathroom. You know, that sounds like a sober house, don't it? Let me try that again. That sounds like a sober house, don't it? Oh, okay. I, I want to know if some people out there, you know, I took my glasses off so I can't see you, so it don't matter. You know, so, you know, and, and, and we went from having everything, man, to, you know, going on the uh, social programs, you know, the welfare program and, and all these other little things. And, you know, and what happened is my mother, she went back to school and, you know, and, uh, and we started to live a better life. And, you know, and, uh, and, and, and you know, and what happened is, in 1968, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, something was going on so so bad in my life that I didn't really understand what was going on, that on Thanksgiving, 1968. Now, I don't know about you guys, what you do here, but in where I grew up at, there's always that kid table. You guys have that kid table? You know, so... I'm sitting at that kid table and all the other kids are there, the grown-ups are over here, and somebody comes in with a bottle of Morgan David cold duck. And they pour it all in their glasses on every kid, and every kid had a glass. None of those kids drink any that night, and I drank seven glasses of Morgan David cold duck. <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, I've always been what's considered an introvert, but that night, man, you know, I had it going on that night. You know, <laughs> Man, that night I was singing James Brown, I Feel Good. You know, I was doing the dance that went with it, you know, doing the temptation strut, and, you know, and, uh, and I fell in love the first that night. You know, she was 29 and I was 8. <laughs> uh, 
And I got my first resentment because I saw her leave with another man. <laughs> so I've been resentful at you all for a very long time. You know, and uh, it didn't matter that it was her husband, but it was another man. <laughs> you know, and my mother, she met this nice man, and, you know, and uh, we decided to move, and we moved to California. And so, you know, it was... It was like we moved, and it was like the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Because, you know, we grew up in Tennessee, and we had a southern accent. We went to Michigan, and in Michigan, they have southern accents. And now we moved to California, and they don't sound nothing like us. Because, you know, we saying stuff like y'all and them and things like that. And we moved to California, and they go, you guys. And, you know, we looking at them like, you know, we heard about people from California anyway. You know, never been there, but we heard about them. You know, and so we moved there, man, and what we did is we moved over into what we call the bottoms over there on 43rd and Hooper, right? And, you know, and, uh, if you know anything about California, that's called the east side. And, you know, and, uh, we get over there, man, and all these dudes over there, they have, like, cool nicknames, you know, like Big Sluggo, you know, Killer. <laughs> killer 1, Killer 2, Killer 3. You know, Big Pinky, you know, and, and they call me Country. You can't catch a girl with a name like Country, you know. Just move your country ass over there and sit down, you know. I, and, you know, and I grew up, you know, with a terrible nickname in a terrible neighborhood, and, you know, and, uh, and I started hanging out, man, and, you know, and I became a community activist. You know, I joined an organization called Community Revolution in Progress. Crips. And started actively destroying the neighborhood that I was living in, man. You know, and, uh, and, and you know, and what made it bad is that, you know, I wasn't a stupid kid. So, you know, you can't grow up and be a gangbanger and, you know, and be smart at the same time. So, you know, I had to dummy up in school, but I've carried a 3.5 grade point average. Uh, you know, I was on the dean's list at one point, but then I wanted to do, you know, the act after school activities. And eventually the after-school activities ran out. You know, and I started drinking a little bit more, and, you know, and I started smoking weed, you know. I smoked weed for two years, that was it, because weed was too slow for me. I like the Zoom Zoom, you know. I don't know about you guys, you know. I like Zoom. I like to get out there in a hurry, and, you know, and, uh, and at that time in the 70s, look at Ricky. Ricky made a little comment about horseback earlier, you know, and, uh, we had cars in the 70s, Rick. <laughs> just want to tell you that, okay? Now, when Russell was little, they had horses, but we had cars. <laughs> so, you know, they had this thing called angel dust. I don't know if you guys ever heard of angel dust. It's in bombing fluid, and you know, and uh, I don't know about anybody else, but I love the effects produced by angel dust. You know, angel dust gets you out there in a hurry. It's real quick. Don't take long. Don't take much, right? I used to like to take mine dip it, put it in the freezer, take it out, dip it again, put it back in the freezer, light it up, take two hits, and take off my clothes. <laughs> I don't know why my clothes would come off when I would do that, but they would always come off, you know. And, and then it would make it so bad I would be up on the roof naked, and, you know, and my girlfriend be down there with one of her friends, and they would be down there laughing at me. You know, I don't know why they was laughing. They sprayed water on me, so I was having... You know, mm. we're not even going to get into that, you know, 
bad memories automatically, you know. And so, you know, I started smoking angel dust and, you know, and doing things that I wasn't supposed to be doing and, you know, just uh, just detrimental to the whole neighborhood that I was living in, and, you know, and I never had a job, you know, never wanted to get a job because my father used to tell us when we was growing up, you know, stuff like games should be sold and not told. You know, so that's the idea that I came up with. In the midst of growing up like that, you know, my father, he had what's called, you guys called pubs. He owned four of them, and so I grew up in that type of life environment where I would go in the clubs, in and out of the clubs as a little kid. And so this is what the lifestyle that I desired. And I set out to live that lifestyle. I started carrying guns, and I started robbing banks and doing things that the normal 15-year-olds are not supposed to do. You know, and, and I enjoyed that lifestyle. I really did. You know, and that lifestyle took me to places that I never should have been going. It let me allow me to see things and do things that I never should have been doing. You know, first time I snorted cocaine was in 1970. <laughs> there he goes again. You know, first time I snorted cocaine. And I mean, you know, it was doing, you know, I don't know if you guys saw the movies like Superfly and, uh, oh, what was his name, uh, Shaft and all of that, you know, the black exploitation films, right? And that's when everybody wore the spoon around their neck, you know. It's not like I'm a drug addict, but why do you have the spoon around your neck? You know what I mean? And, you know, the first time I snorted cocaine, it was like everybody else in the black neighborhood. You know, immediately I snorted cocaine and my voice changed. Yeah, baby, what's happening? Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> Why everybody in the black neighborhood talked like that as soon as they snorted cocaine. I mean, dudes with deep voices. Yeah, how you doing, man? Yeah, man. Yeah, everybody was doing it, man. It was amazing to me, you know. But so what happened is that, you know, I, I went into a bank one day to make a withdrawal, and when I came out, the police was out there and asked me for the deposit slip. You know, and um, they wanted to deposit me into a place. And at that time, I was 18 years old, and you know, and I had a Fu Manchu, and I had French braids down to the middle of my back, and you know, and I was cute. I was real sexy, and I was too sexy to be going to the penitentiary. You know, I was, I was not penitentiary material. No, no, no. You know, and uh, and, and then what happened is I kept fighting this case, and the judge made me a deal. You know, the deal was, you know, I could go into any branch of the military that I wanted or he was going to give me 10 years. And, you know, and I chose the United States Marine Corps. So, Ricky, October 24th, 1978, I was standing on the yellow footprints. You know, and it was an adventure. And for the next 12 years, I would be there. And, you know, and, uh, and I did what we do. You know what I mean? You know what we do. You know, I got there and I was, you know... Bill talked about it. Fortune and applause was thrown my way. I got the promotions. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. You know, I had extended my hand so far out that I could continue to pat myself on the back. <laughs> you know, and, and and it was a great adventure, man. And, you know, and I and, and you know and I and, and you know and, and I met you people the first time in 1980. You know, I was in Iwakuni, Japan, and I was, you know, in Japan, they drive on the same side of the road that you guys drive on, but I got drunk and I wanted to drive on the American side one night, and they kind of frowned on that, and so, you know, I had to go and visit them, and uh, and, and I, they sent me to visit you all. In 1980, I was 20 years old, and, and I came to my first meeting of those folks, and it was some idiot 
like the guy who was up here reading before I got here. Some another idiot was reading something else. And then an idiot like me came up and said his name. And he said the dumbest thing that I've ever heard in my entire life. He said, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. Now let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. And they went around the room and each one of them, my name is Bill, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, you look like one. <laughs> My name is Mary. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, that poor child. My name is Randy. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they got to me, and I looked around, and I said, Yeah, my name's Carl. I'm confused. <laughs> and this idiot stayed up there talking, and, and he talked for about a few minutes, and then he said the words that walked me right out the door. He said, I'm powerless. Now, I was 20 years old. I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. Only been in two years and I was already a three-strike sergeant. I was on the drill field and I had power and control. When I walked in the room, 80 men would stand on their feet and they wouldn't move until I tell them to move. I could walk in this building, all these men would stand up, and I could walk out that door, come in that door, go out that door, and they would still be in the same position. I had power and control. So I don't know what this fool was talking about. He powerless. Yeah. You be powerless by yourself. And I signed my card the rest of the four times I was supposed to visit you people because I wasn't coming back. You know, and a few years later, I married my high school sweetheart. Ladies, take a walk with Carl. Just the ladies. I don't play that funny business, all right? So, ladies, picture this. I'm 23 years old. I'm six one and a half, 165 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal. I said I'm six one and a half. This is my story, fellas. I see how you're looking at me. I'm telling this story, all right? I'm six one and a half. <laughs> see, that's why I wouldn't let you go on the journey, see? And me and this lady, I got married in full-dress blue uniform. We had what's called the officer sword, the Mameluke sword, the white one. Knew a guy in supply, and we got him. When, when they said, I'd like to present to you for the state of California, Mr. and Mrs. Carl M. Warlick. Their heels came together, and these all guys turned, the decision turns, walked up the aisleway, they stopped, and all the swords came out, and we walked through cross sabers. We cut the cake with the Mameluke sword. The best day of her life. <laughs> Guys, quick, you must know I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> we got married on a Saturday. I was sleeping with another woman on Sunday. Don't judge me, you and CA too. <laughs> you know, and uh, I remember the wedding vows, man. In the wedding vows, you know, we said a lot of good things, a lot of flowery stuff in the wedding vows. One of the things that we talked about was, you know, uh, love, honor, protect, you know, what the role of the husband was going to be, and I didn't fulfill any of those roles. You know, within a few months, you know, she was back in L.A., and I was glad she was gone. You know, it, it went from being verbal to physical things that I said I would never do. I turned into the person that I said I would never turn into. You know, I turned into my father. And I said I would never be that man. And she went back to L.A. and, you know, and I was somewhat glad she left. 
and I, and I left the States and I went to Japan and I stayed there for the next five years. And in the next five years, I would, you know, get more rank and be more successful at what I was doing. And, you know, and I came back to the States and, you know, and uh, the divorce was already in and, you know, and I was off and running. You know, alcohol has always been prevalent in my life. And that's why I love Cocaine Anonymous because we get to talk about, you know, cocaine and all other mind-altering substances. All other mind-altering substances. You know, I used to like to take acid. I don't know about anybody else in the world. You know, look, I saw some of y'all going, <laughs> uh, follow that hand all the way across. And see, and so, you know, I like acid, man, you know, and, and in the military, I don't know if any of you guys have been in the military, man, and they say there's no, hey, turn out that blue light, what are you doing? You know, and they say in the military there's no drugs, but, you know, we had everything that we wanted was right there in front of us, and, you know, and don't think I didn't partake in them because I was, and, you know, and right after that, you know, they came out with the law that, you know, you couldn't do drugs. But by then, I was an E-7 gunnery sergeant, and I was the guy that was doing the urine test. <laughs> you know, hey, if you're going to violate the law, you might as well be the law. You know? <laughs> and so, you know, are we doing this thing, man, and, you know, and I'm having fun, and I'm living life, and, you know, and, uh, and then the trouble started because, you know, I got another DUI. And, you know, and I had to visit you guys again, you know, around about 85. And, you know, and I had just came back to the States. And, you know, and I had been watching the television in Japan. And, you know, and I had been hearing the news. There was this new thing that was out, you know, called rock cocaine. And, you know, and everybody that I talked to, they told me, Carl, don't mess with this. Don't mess with this. But I remember the first time when I freebased it was in the 70s. You know, and I took a couple of hits and it went down in my stomach and it made me sick. And I never did that again. Now, I snorted a lot of cocaine and, you know, and I did other stuff. But that smoking that stuff was not going to be my thing. You know, but uh, like I said, but uh, <laughs> should I say it again? So you guys know when I start mentioning cocaine, my story almost over, right? Either I'm going to get sober or I'm going to die up here, one or the other. But, you know, it's going to come to an end real quick. You know, so in 1985, man, I was home and, you know, and, uh, and, and, and you know, and it, it was one of those typical California days. You know, I had just had another fight with my ex-wife at about 6 in the morning. You know, and I remember we used to get notes from our neighbors. You know, every time we moved, we used to get thank you letters. People would thank us for moving, you know. <laughs> thank you. Glad you're gone, you know. And, we had another one of those arguments, and, you know, and I was going to leave L.A., and I went to Pasadena because my mom lived in Altadena, which is just north of Pasadena. And I, I'm driving, man. It's beautiful out there, man. We were driving up this street. I'm going up the street called Bear Oaks. And just picture this. You're going north straight toward the mountains. There's palm trees everywhere. It's sunny. It's like 7 o'clock in the morning. It's about 90 degrees or, should I say, uh, 45 Celsius. So it was hot, you know, and I got my shirt off and I'm just got a beer between my legs already, so I'm feeling kind of good. And I look over and I see this girl standing over to my right. She had French braids that came down to here and her shorts came up to meet her French braids. And I kind of looked at her and she looked at me and I still remember when I pulled over. She kind of stuck her leg out and she smiled. She said, hey, sucker. I mean, hey, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I pulled over. <coughs> Excuse me. I pulled over, and she and I made a commitment. She told me, if I spend ten dollars, all these magnificent things are going to happen. <laughs> so all she said was ten dollars, and we went to the spot, and you know, and, uh, and it was just, it was just crazy, man. I, picture this. She's over there, and we're having this nice conversation. She and I, we just having dialogue, and it's back and forth. And she's over there doing like this, and and just chopping and doing whatever she was doing. And, and I'm over here drinking, thinking, yeah, we can ready to have some fun up in here, boy, too. Yeah. And she went like this, and she said, and all of a sudden her loop dropped, and she stopped talking like this. getting nervous now, you know, and, and I'm thinking the fun is over, what just happened, you know, and, and then she did it again, and, and she said to me, she said, she couldn't say, she couldn't say, she said, she said, about people like me and you know and it tells me why I do what I do it says men and women like Carl they drink essentially because they like the effects produced by it but see I'm here to tell you the secret I'm going to give you the secret right here thank you brother I appreciate you man. Russell himself himself we didn't get me a glass of water he's supposed to be my friend and my host He got what he wanted out of me now. He don't need me no more. <laughs> and so the real secret is this right here. What the big book should have said was, men and women like Carl, they smoke. You guys ready for this? You ready? Because they like the effects produced by car antennas. Yeah. 
I spent $1,600 on a car antenna about this long. And for the next seven years, I would chase car antennas like a dog. You know, rent 1010 or something. I, all over L.A., all over Southern California, I would just chase car antennas. And for the next seven years, I, I would... So, I mean, I'm still in the Marine Corps, and I'm still doing things, and I get a viable position. I move up to Quantico, and, you know, my buddy, he's getting out, and he has an ideal. He don't know that I'm hitting the pipe or smoking car, or car antennas. He don't know that I'm smoking car antennas, and he's getting out, and he comes up with a brilliant ideal that I put into practical application. His ideal was he's going to become a truck driver. He's going to drive from the East Coast to the West Coast, and every time he comes back, he's going to bring back cocaine. Now, I'm in Quantico, Virginia. Some of you probably know what Quantico, Virginia is and what they do there. For others that don't, Quantico not only trains the Marine Corps officers there, but they also train the FBI, the CIA, and all types of intelligent people that have something to do with law enforcement. Probably a dumb ideal if you want to sell cocaine in Quantico. <laughs> but it seemed like a good ideal at the time, all right? I'm just saying, you know. And, and so what happened is that, you know, um, you know, how... Where's Stuart at from Scotland? Where's Stuart at? Stuart, you know how you got out of jail? They, the police told the people that they arrested, they said, you give us two and you can go free. He must not be here, huh? Because <laughs> I know he would have said something about that. I'm not a fucking snitch, Carl! <laughs> so, so that's what happened. Two people got arrested and I ended up in Leavenworth. 36 months I took the deal, they were offering me the deal, and to make it so bad, it was 10 years from the day when I was supposed to have been arrested in 76, here it is in 86, I'm finally on my way to federal prison. I get a bad conduct discharge from the Marine Corps. I do my little 36 months over in Leavenworth, and I, and, and I get out and I go to Tennessee and I try to live there. By now, I'm so resentful and I'm so hateful, you know, that nobody really want to be around me and I don't want to be around nobody, you know. And, and, and I start doing stuff down there in Tennessee and, you know, and, and in the South, they don't play that stuff and they put me on a bus. Two big old dudes, just like they show in the, in, uh, in, in the movies, two big old dudes with Smokey the Bear hats on, grabbed me up one night and said, boy, if you come back here again, we're going to kill you. <laughs> They put me on a bus and send me back to California, and, you know, and that behavior didn't stop, man. You know, I, I, I started just, you know, I was already wreaking havoc on everywhere that I went. Now I'm starting to wreak havoc in the people that's close to me, you know, and I started to do things and say things and hurt people that, that shouldn't have been hurt, you know, because I don't know what you do, but when I take a hit off that pipe, when I smoke cocaine, all bets are off, I have no friends. You know, when I smoke cocaine, I hear people say they had all these lavish parties and all of that right there. No, when I smoke cocaine, that is my job, that is my business, and if you get in the way of me and my business, you will get hurt. You know, I smoke cocaine with people one way, and they only smoke with me one time, because after I run out, I pull out my gun and I usually rob you. you know, I don't care if you're a woman or a man, you know, shake them, take them clothes off, everybody on the floor, that's what I do. You know, and what happened is that I got tired, man. I got tired. You know, in October of 1992, I had all the meat that I could stand. You know, I smoked all I could smoke. I shot all the dope that I could shoot. I drank all that I could drink. 
I was at this lady's house and I had been there for a couple of weeks and you know and I hadn't showered, I hadn't did anything. You know, you know when you <coughs> excuse me ladies, I'm gonna talk to the guys. You know, fellas, when you unzip your fly and your eyes start watering. That's how funky I was. <laughs> Look, you see, some of the guys not laughing because they know what I'm talking about, you know. And that's how it got for me, man, because, you know, uh, it was just about getting loaded and just about getting the next one, you know. And I had hit a lick that night. That mean, I went out and I robbed somebody that night. And I came back to this lady's house and, you know, and uh, we were smoking, you know, I was shooting dope and we had alcohol and, you know, and I shot dope and I drank and I smoked dope. I shot dope and I drank and I smoked dope. And I don't know if it ever happened to you, but on that night, on that particular night, no matter how much I put in my system, no matter how much I put in my system, I just couldn't get loaded that night. You know, it wasn't the fact that it stopped working because drugs and alcohol never stopped working. I just couldn't get loaded that night. I got up from that table that I was sitting at and I went back and I knelt down on this filthy linoleum floor and I said the words that are most effective in all the 12-step communities. God help me, please. That's all I said. And I got up off the floor. And I started walking. Now, I was in Pasadena, California when I said, God help me. And when I stopped walking, I was in Long Beach, California, which is 26 miles away. I walked to the VA hospital, and you know, and I had got a bad conduct discharge. So therefore, they wasn't supposed to allow me in, in the premises. But God had already had a plan for me. It was already set up. It was preordained. I was destined to be where I was supposed to be, you know, on that day. On October 7th, I checked into the VA hospital. You know, and they gave me 28 days, and in the 28 days there, something miraculous happened. The magic didn't happen to me, but somebody brought in the magic. Is there anybody that do hospitals and institutions in here? Anybody do that tonight? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because a man came down and he brought, he brought a panel of hospitals and institutions in there. There's a line in our book of experience that says, uh, practical experience shows that nothing so much ensure immunity from that next hit or that next drink, that intensive work with another alcoholic. And then there's a promise. It says, this works when all other activities fail. You see, that man had read the book and he had read it well. And I was one of the lucky stiffs that was sitting in the front row that night. And, you know, and he came in there, man, and, you know, and uh, I don't remember what he said, but I remember what that woman said. She said what I had heard in some other meetings, and I know some of you probably related to that. She had on some shorts that was too short for H&I. <laughs> and I weighed about 135 pounds, and I looked like that bobblehead up there, just big old head, little bitty body. I had a tooth missing in the front. And I was sitting there smiling at her with a tooth missing. <laughs> and I remember she looked right at me and she said, Carl, if you want what I have and I'm willing to go to any lengths to get it. And right after the meeting, I wanted to see what she had, you know. And what happened is the man cut me off and, you know, and he told me, he said, he asked me, he said, man, where you live? And I, I didn't want to tell him I'm homeless in Pasadena. He said, uh, when you get out of here, man, he said, go to Altadena 185. Now, if you guys remember, I told you my mother lived in Altadena, right? 
the church that the man suggested that I go to was 185 Altadena Drive. My mother lived in 186 Altadena Drive. I had been sitting on her porch a lot of times, sitting on the porch, just looking straight ahead and watching these people going in and out of this meeting. And I didn't know it was a meeting. I just thought to myself, damn, when the church going, there's people I haven't seen in my life. You know, they were there every day, just going and going. And, you know, and I went to my first meeting of Cocaine Anonymous on a Thursday. And, you know, and, uh, back in 92, you know, the people wasn't that nice up in there, man, because, you know, I had 28 days straight out of treatment. And, you know, and I knew a whole lot. I did, and I wanted to share with them how much I knew. <laughs> Hear what I had to say. And they proved it when the lady told me I raised my hand. She said, newcomer, sit your ass down and shut the fuck up. <laughs> and what made it so bad, she had a cast on her leg, and I know she couldn't fight. And and I just sat down like the punk that I was, you know. And you know, and I start going to meetings, man. And you know, and, and and I wouldn't suggest you do this, people. If you if you knew in the fellowship, I started going to meetings. I went to meetings Monday through Friday. I didn't go on Saturday and Sunday because I wanted to watch American football. And then somebody told me, said, "Hey, man, you know, people get loaded on Saturday and Sunday." I said, "What?" And I started going on Saturday and Sunday. And I had commitments, and I would do the literature commitment, the coffee commitment, and little commitments like that. But I had no major commitments, like sponsorship. And I stayed around for six months, and I was lifting weights, wearing white beater t-shirts, walking around like I was still on the yard. And wonder why nobody was hugging me. And it was this man there, you know, I didn't like him. I didn't like him. I really didn't like him because he had embarrassed me in front of them girls one day. Because, you know, I couldn't read when I got here and I was reading who was a cocaine addict. Well, I was destroying who was a cocaine addict. And he corrected me. And I looked at him and he looked at me and he said, keep coming back. And I said, I am. I'm coming back to whoop your ass. You know? My soul intentions, you know. And, and I started hanging out and I, you know, and I started, I started ear hustling. You know what ear hustling is. People who've been sober for a while, I would, you know, kind of ease up and listen to their conversations. And one day I had got my little first car you know, my little $200 CA car, and you know, and uh, this day, for some reason, after the meeting was over, the parking lot went, Phew. everybody was gone except for that man, and my car wouldn't start. <laughs> and he came over to me, and he said, hey man, you need some help? Hey man, screw you, pal. <laughs> and I started walking, and I started walking, and it was a long way to get down the street. And I started walking, and it was hot like it is, you know, 45 Celsius or above. It was hot, and you know, and he rode past me, and he went, ink, ink. <laughs> I was furious, you know. And I turned the corner and walked some more, he came again. Ink, ink. Oh, 
Oh, I was thinking I'm going to kill him when I see him. I'm just getting my hands around his neck, you know. And, you know, and he came back down the hill and he said, neat, neat. And he let the window down. He said, hey, man, you need to ride. I said, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no. Don't clap because I didn't surrender now. I got in the car. I slammed the door as hard as I could. And I commenced to look at him, you know, with that steely-eyed sex trade killer look. And, and he's driving along, man, and he's talking about God, his family been restored, the 12-step made it possible and all of this. And he turned and he looked at me the same way I was looking at him. Man, do you want me to sponsor you? humility to ask somebody, would you help me save my life? I'm glad this man had read the book and he read that part where it said, the man who was making the approach. You see, what has happened is that the young man was talking about it last night or last night or the night before. We've gotten lazy around here and, you know, as we got some time and sobriety, well, we don't want to make the approach no more. We think because we get some time and, like, time means something. Time means you just closer to your next hit. That's all it means, okay? And, and then we think because we done got some time that we don't have to approach the newcomer. You know, what we do in my home group, if you walk in new, somebody will come over to you. We'll give you five minutes to get you some coffee. By the time you get set down, good three or four people done walked over to you. Hey, how you doing? What you what you want here? <laughs> you know, and, and you know, uh, and, and we do weird stuff. You know, I don't give the newcomer my number. I say, what's your number? And then I do something weird. I call them. <laughs> they be like, who is this? What do you want? This is a hostage situation. We coming to get you. <laughs> you know, so what that man did was he told me, he said, I need you to meet me here every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. And every Saturday morning we met and he literally walked me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He walked me through line by line, paragraph by paragraph, and page by page. Everybody don't go through that way, but the man knew I was having problems reading. So he took time out with me. You know, and he introduced me to the steps nice and slow where I could get an understanding of the steps. Not only have an understanding, but have an experience, because that's what Bill said this, this book was about. It was about having an experience. And, you know, and I had an experience, man, and I started to see the truth in the first step, what it was really about, about how my life had become unmanageable. You know, my life had become unmanageable long before, you know, I had started drinking and using. My life became unmanageable when I left my mama house. Huh? Think about it. When was your life manageable? The only time when my life was manageable when somebody else was managing it. <laughs> Most of the time I didn't like the people who was managing it, but, you know, they were... They were doing a better job than I was, you know, inmate, get against that wall. <laughs> you know, so we started to look at the unmanageability, you know, and then we started to look at some other things. We talked about the physical part, the physical aspect of this disease, how my body would do some weird stuff, right? You know, this is the weird part about the body, right? The body would do some weird stuff like this. The body will start talking to the mind. Your body don't do that? Think about it when you was getting loaded. Your mind will have an idea, but your body will start making all kind of noises. And your mind will say, huh? What you say? 
And then your body will go, oh, 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 oh. And your mind said, sound like a good idea to me. <laughs> and then your mind will think that it came up with an idea that it's going to go get us, it's going to get it, going to go get one. It's going to get loaded. This is what your mind say. I'm going to go get loaded. And your mind will get one hit, and then it don't get no more hits because your body take the rest of it. And now your mind is mad at your body saying, I told you, motherfucker, we should have went home. <laughs> and then the book makes it real clear. It says, where the main problem is that it centers in my mind. You see? But I have to talk about the body first. I have to talk about the body. I have to know what the body does and how the body can trick my mind just like my mind can trick my body. You see? So if the main problem centers in my mind, then, you know, I have to go into the second step. And, you know, when I go into the second step, it's real funny because, you know, a lot of people think that the second step is just going to talk about God. It is going to talk about God. But the second step is going to talk about something that we don't even talk about. It says in the second step that a power greater than who? Huh? A power greater than who? Myself. I needed a power greater than myself. So if I have to have a power greater than myself, what does that mean? That means that I'm a power. I'm a power. I've been operating under the power of Carl for so long that I don't even know that I need a power greater than me. Because I think that I'm the greater power. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Look at how I live if I don't think I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Who makes decisions for me? I make decisions for me. And what happens when I make decisions for me? That's right. <laughs> they don't turn out right, but then I have the power to blame you. <laughs> if you hadn't have been here, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> so I need a power that's greater than me. I need a power that's greater than me because I'm a power. And I have something that no other, no other thing on this, on this earth has except for people like us. And that's the power of will, the power of reason, and the power of self. And it manifests, self be manifesting itself in various ways. That's what the book said. And self starts to make all kind of decisions for self. And if I don't have a power greater than me, guess who I'll go to when I have a problem? I'll go to the power of self. So in other words, I go to the same place for a solution that's causing the problem. Oh, y'all got quiet now, huh? He's <laughs> like, oh, he ain't bullshitting no more. <laughs> we ain't in Kansas no more, darling. <laughs> and so, that's why the third step becomes so important. You see, because in the third step, that's where, for the first time in my wretched life, I get to do something that I've never done. I get to find out some things about me, first of all. Everybody knows that I'm selfish, that I'm self-centered. You know, they already know that, but now I get to find out. Everybody knows that I'm always in collision with everybody else. You already know that about me. You know, how do you know that I'm in collision with somebody else? Why are you always coming home with knots on your head? You keep falling. You keep having personal problems with everybody that you know. So in the third step, 
I get to do something. I get to find out something, first of all. You know, I think for me, the most important promise that I found out in the third step was that my problems were of my own making. See, I don't need you to do anything. I don't need you to get better. I don't, you can stay as just as you are because I'm the one that's going to create the problems anyway. You can be loving, kind, gentle. You can be all that stuff, but I'm going to create a problem regardless of how it falls down. Carl is going to do something. So my problems are of my own making. So that gives me permission to stop blaming you, and that gives you permission to stop taking charge of my bullshit. And then I go into the third step. And then the third step prayer, you know, the third step prayer is irrevocable. You see, once you take the third step prayer, you can't give that back. You know, and, and a lot of people think that, you know, you, you know, you know, you hear it in meetings all the time. Well, I took the third step, but I gave it back. <laughs> you can't do that. Once you take the third step, once you say, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as I will, you, you're done. It's a done die. Done. You don't get to do that no more. You can think about it. You can try and do it, but you don't get to do it anymore. Oh, you you. Stick a fork in you. You're done. It's over. You see, the third step is irrevocable. But it says, we thought well before taking this vital step, making sure that we was ready. And at last, I could abandon myself utterly unto him. i got to give all of me to him. If I want the results, i got to give all of me to him. And then the thing about it is that I need power because I'm powerless, so I need power in order to write inventory. I need, I need power. I need power to see the truth. Because, you know, I've been living in three dimensions all my life. All my life I live in three dimensions. What you did to me, how it affected me, and who you are. I've been living in three dimensions. And the book makes it real clear. If you've got a sponsor that tells you to burn your inventory, you tell them, Carl from Pomona, California, told you to find a different sponsor. Because the book says, it's going to tell you, referring, referring back to our list. It says, now we're going to look at it from a different angle. And when we start looking at it from a different angle, we're going to start looking at some other stuff. We're going to start looking at the fourth column. We're going to start looking at some truth in there. And I know, you know, we start talking about inventory, people get quiet. They be like, there he go again. <laughs> he don't know what I do. And so, you know, and now I get to do something that I've never done before because, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood like most of you did. You know, you was told as a child, don't tattletale, right? Don't snitch, don't tattletale. But this time I get a chance to snitch on myself. I get a chance to tell somebody what they already know about me anyway. I get a chance to tell somebody the truth about some stuff that I've been holding on to and I can't be free of and I'll never be at peace until I get rid of it. Until I get rid of it. It's not where I go to somebody's house and I hear people say, I'm going to dump my inventory on my sponsor. No, you ain't going to dump nothing on me. We're going to sit down and we're going to have a long conversation is what we're going to do. Ain't no dumping here, buddy. You know, and so we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about this. And we're going to see, well, not only are we going to look at the liabilities, but we're going to look at your assets too. Because, you know, there's some good in all of us, man. And sometimes we just got to be able to see what the good is. 
You know, the book don't say a amoral or immoral inventory, and that's what most people end up writing is an immoral inventory. And then the people that write an immoral inventory, they come back and tell the people who haven't wrote inventory just how horrible it is to write inventory. <laughs> you know, my friend Russell, my friend Russell, man, he shared at the San Gabriel Pomona Valley Convention a few years ago. I was so impressed by what he said and what happened. He shares the story. Can I share it, Russell? about him and his sponsor. His sponsor told Russell, come over. His sponsor says, come on over, I'm going to watch a movie. Russell didn't hear that part. Russell heard, we going to watch a movie. This movie said, his sponsor told him, you go write inventory, I'm going to watch a movie. <laughs> you know and I sat there, I was like, wow, innovative. Jeez. And Russell wrote inventory and Russell got free. You see what I mean? Because Russell didn't know about the boogeyman. And you hear people telling the boogeyman stories. Oh, if you write inventory, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. You haven't wrote inventory, so shut your mouth. <laughs> and then I roll on into step six, man. You know, and, and, and this is the deal right here, man. When you hear somebody tell you, they say, uh, go home and work on your defects. Carl from Pasadena, I mean from Pomona, California, said, if your sponsor tell you to go home and work on your defects, find a new sponsor. You see, you cannot make grass grow through concrete. But yet grass grows through concrete, right? I don't have the power to work on my defects, so there's another step that comes behind that that's going to grant me some power. And it's going to take care of my defects for me because it's going to say to remove these. But i got to be willing to do it, though. You know, you can't do like I did with my first set of inventory. You know, there were some things that I really wouldn't like to give up with, you know, like slutting around. There's some people in here know what I'm talking about. And, you know, I, I didn't say whoring around because whores get paid. I was doing it for free, so I was slutting. You know what I mean? I, see, so I, I didn't want to give up that in the beginning, that slutting around. And, you know, and, and, you know, it's like everything else. Pain is the great motivator. You know, pain will make you stop slutting around. You know, plus getting three women pregnant will make you stop slutting around. <laughs> And so, you know, and then you sit down, man, and you started writing that eight-step list. And, you know, and on your eight-step list, a lot of times, man, there are some people that's going to be on your, in your eight-step list that you have nothing or no, no resentment with, you know. But you got to refer back to that, so don't burn the inventory. Good. So, and then, you know, you set out on the amends process. Man, I'll share a couple of amends with y'all. I'm not going to keep y'all long. We're going to get this thing going. And so, after doing that list in the eighth step, man, my daughter, when I grew, when I, my daughter, she was born in 1979, and she was my baby. You know, just like most daughters, you know, gentlemen, we they first love. You know, this is a little girl that rode on my shoulders and you know, I picked her up from school, we walked home, and we went and got ice cream, and she rolled on my shoulders and put ice cream on my eyes, and, you know, all of that stuff, right? 
And then, you know, I started messing with cocaine and the relationship between me and her mother severed and the relationship between my daughter, me and my daughter severed because I started making promises that I wouldn't keep. You know, like, I'll be there, and I'll do this, and I'll do that. And none of those things were happening. My daughter, she hated me. I mean, she was so angry with me when I got sober, man, that a lot of times I would just try to avoid her. But I knew I couldn't avoid her because, you know, I had done wrong, and I needed to make it right. And so the first time I sat down with her, and, you know, and um, I made the amends, and she, we talked, and I asked her, was there anything else she'd like to share with me and what I could do would make it right? And, you know, and it went on for a couple of years, and, you know, and we used to go to dinner with the family and stuff like that. And my daughter, she would always sit on the end there, and I would sit down here. And <coughs> she would say stuff like, ask him to pass me the salt. My name was him. And it was him for a couple of years. And, you know, and, uh, and I just kept doing what you guys told me to do. You know, I didn't parent out of guilt because a lot of times, you know, that's what we want to do. We want to parent out of guilt. But I parented out of, you know, out of what CA had taught me, out of women had taught me how to, you know, take care of this. And what I did was I started keeping my word. I started doing things. If I tell my daughter I'm going to be there at 7 o'clock, you know, at 6.59, I was knocking on the door. If I tell her I was going to be at her school for something, an event, I was there early and I stayed to the end. You know, if I tell her that, you know, I was going to buy this dress for you for this reason, and that's what I did. And, you know, and I started doing this, and, and, you know, and that gap between me and her at the table, it started to get a little bit smaller. It started to get a little bit smaller. And then my baby, man, she was 15, and she got pregnant. And, you know, and I almost lost my mind. I didn't know what to do. And so I went back, and I talked to the ladies in, in Cocaine Anonymous, and what they told me to do was they said, be a father. Be a father. Said, don't verbally abuse your child. If she decides she wants to keep this baby, what you have to do is you have to support her in everything that she does. And I started to support her in everything, in every aspect. You know, her and her husband, they've been together since they were 14 years old, and they're both 36 now. You know. The deal is, the deal is, is that when my daughter got ready to get married, she called her father. You see what I'm saying? Because I had doing the, started doing the things that you guys told me to do. She called her father and said, Dad, me and Joanne are going to go to Vegas and get married. And her dad said, no, you're not. Since you're going to get down, you're going to stay down here, and you're going to have the type of wedding that you want to have. She said, but we can't afford it. And I said, but I can't. I said, that's my responsibility. So I gave my baby the type of wedding that she wanted to have. And I got a chance to walk my daughter down the aisle, you know. <laughs> That's cocaine anonymous, man. You know, and, and, and the deal is, is that, you know, I was talking with Jackie earlier because Jackie didn't know. And, you know, where's my friends from Scotland at? Where's my Scotland friends at? You know, I want to thank you. Thank you because in 2012 you invited me to Scotland. And, you know, and it was right after my son had died. And, you know, and it was a very emotional time for me. And, you know, and you guys invited me there, man, and you guys just loved on me, and you know. I said that wasn't going to happen. 
because I needed to be tough today, you know. Uh, but you guys just loved on me, man, and you know, and I and I and I'll never forget that, man. You know, Stuart and you know, and David, you know, and they were our hosts, and you know, and me and Dave been Facebook friends since 2002, man. And, and I always like to hit Dave and ask him how was his mother and how his sister because they took care of us when we was there, and you know, and uh, and, and I just love you guys for that, man. So you know, thank you, and I appreciate you. And if I can ever do anything for you. <clears throat> Don't hesitate to call me, all right? If I could ever do anything for you, you know. So that's what Cocaine Anonymous did for me, you know. It took a guy like me, you know. Thank you. You know, if you're crying like a little girl, <laughs> and, then, and then the lady passing the neck. <clears throat> it's usually the other way around, you know. Uh, but what I found out is that in Cocaine Anonymous, men do cry, you know. And, and you know, and what, I, and what has happened is that, you know, in, in two years before my son died, my mom died. And so, you know, for the last six years, that's what I've been dealing with. Is I've been dealing with death. And, you know, and, uh, and I was talking to one of the brothers earlier, and, you know, from Scotland, and he asked me, have I got past that yet? And, you know, and uh, truly, I have not. You know, and I was sharing with him, man, I have letters from my son when then he was locked up, he was in jail, and you know I have letters that sits on the mantle, and I haven't read them yet, and you know, and one day I'm going to read them because I don't know what they're going to say, but whatever it is, it's going to be a, a time to get free. But right now, I'm just not ready yet. I just want to hold on to some of those memories, and you know, and eventually I'll let that stuff go, you know, and and you know, and so that's where I'm at with that, and you know, and 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 you know, and uh. Let me share with you about cocaine anonymous, man. You know, I got sober in 92, and I started doing service work in 92. And, you know, for the guy that couldn't read when he got here, right, you know, I went from being a area service or doing meeting service to area service to world service to the board of trustees to the chairperson of the board of trustees. I served with Jackie, I served with Philip, I served with Jack B, you know, I served with Nick the Stitch, you know, all of these great people over here, man, and you know, and I'll share things about your area to you that you probably don't even know, you know, and, and I'll be honest with you, you know, that lady right there, she's sitting right there, that lady got more balls than most men I know, <laughs> I'm telling it to you, you know. When Jackie made the motion for you guys to become a region, remember, Jackie? You know, some people in, in, in America, they were saying, no, nah, we're not ready. We can't afford it and all of this stuff. And, you know, and, uh, and Jackie sat next to me and where the board of trustees sat there, you know. And I was telling Jackie, make the motion, Jackie, make the motion. Screw them. <laughs> Jackie got up there and she said, I'd like to make a motion. And she made the motion that you guys become a region. UK region. I was so proud of her that day, man. You know, and the whole room just erupted. And this little lady right here, my friend, my friend, if Nick is still here, Nick liked to say he was the first European trustee. I tell him all the time, Jackie was. <laughs> I tell him to piss him off. That's why I tell him that. <laughs> I was the first European regional trustee. No, he wasn't. Nick, Jackie was. <laughs> You know, 
Man, I love Cocaine Anonymous, man. It has taken me to places and, and allowed me to do things that I thought I would never be able to do again. You know, my friend Ian over there, man. Ian invited me over here, was it 2011? And, you know, and I, was, I wasn't able to leave the state because, you know, I had what um, Eric was talking about earlier. I had some unfinished amends, you know, $80,000 worth. <laughs> and I wasn't going to give them their money. And the United States government said, if you ever want to leave here, you're going to give us our money. And I called them up and I made a deal with them. And I started chipping away at it, chipping away, chipping away. And yeah, and I gave them their 80 grand. And you know, and I, now I can go like, like our books say, I can go anywhere any other free man can go, you know. And that's all about cocaine anonymous, man. You know, what I share with you is that, you know, you guys have not only affected my life, but you affected my whole family. You know what I'm saying? I didn't say you affected, I said you infected. You infected my whole family. You infected them with love. You see, that's what you did. You infected them with love because, see, first you loved me, and in the process of loving me and building me and making me into a whole man, I was able to take what you gave me and take it into my family. You know, me and my brother-in-laws, we used to not get along and argue and have fist fights and stuff. And, you know, and now, you know, we haven't had a fist fight in 23 years. And, you know, we sit at the same tables with each other and have decent conversations because of Cocaine Anonymous, man. Everything that I am is because of you. You see, you created this right here. You created me. And, you know, and, I, and I'm so grateful for you, man, for everything that you've done in my life, for everything that you've done in my family life, man. My mother, she loved Cocaine Anonymous. Before she died, she told me one thing. She said, whatever you do, don't stop going to see the people. <laughs> told me, don't stop going to see the people. Don't stop seeing you guys. You know, and I'll never stop coming to see you guys because, see, you guys... You guys, man, you all make it possible for me to wake up every morning. You all make it possible for me to pray to a God that I truly will never really understand. But you told me that he was there, and if I prayed to him and did his work well, that he would provide for what I need. And he has provided for what I needed for the last 23 years. As a matter of fact, I'm overpaid. I have more than I would ever need because of what you guys done. You know, man, I'm so grateful, man. I'm so grateful to the fellowship, man. There's been some great people in my life and some great mentors, man. And one of the guys named Herman. Herman used to always tell me, he said, son, either you're going to go or you're going to grow. I said, that's it. He said, you're going to go or you're going to grow. He said, some people have to leave here, man. Some people have to leave here. And, you know, and, I, and I, let, me, let me go off the cuff and share this I was sharing with Ricky. You know, uh, don't believe a lot of the bullshit that you hear around here, okay? I needed to just get that out. You know, you hear people say, uh, some of us will have to die for others of us to live. Bullshit. Okay? I'm not a real Christian or anything like that, but the Christian Bible said that was taken care of over 2,000 years ago. So you don't have to do nothing for me. If you want to go out and die, that's on you. You're not doing me a favor. You're not doing me a favor. So hang out with us, man. Live. Man, this is the, bar none, this is the best that I've ever had. I've never known life to be this good right now as it is.
So with that, and thus we grow, and so can you. Though you be but one man with this book in your hand, we believe and hope it contains all you will need to begin. We know what you are thinking. You're saying to yourself, I'm jittery and I'm alone. I cannot do that, but you can. For you forgot that you have just now tapped into a source of power much greater than yourself. To duplicate with such backing that we have accomplished is only a matter of patience, willing, and labor. Still, you may say, I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that, so you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship that you crave. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize that we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation which you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something that you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the records of your past and give freely of what you find and join us. And we shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. And I'll leave you with the last nine words of our founder and our co-founder. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you very much.